Okay, welcome back to the Murmurations podcast, everybody. Um, today we're joined by Dr. Jonathan Cable from the University of Gloucestershire. Good morning, John- Jonathan. Good morning. Uh, Jonathan and I have known each other for many years, and we did our MA and PhD together at Cardiff University. Uh, there's loads that me and Jonathan could talk about, but today we're going to concentrate on his current interests in um, sport journalism and particularly football culture. Uh, Jonathan also studies protest sport media and journalism in relation to a number of topics that we're going to talk about today in, in relation to current events as well. So yeah. this should be really interesting. Um, Jonathan, do you want to give us a quick introduction to your research interests and teaching background? Yeah, I'll give you a quick tour. So as you already mentioned, uh, back at Cardiff University doing a PhD. And that was all about looking at protest and how it's communicated. So I looked at three different groups and how they use different protest tactics in order to get their message out there into the wider world. So it included uh, plain stupids who were environmental direct action. Um, and they were trying to stop the expansion of Heathrow Airport, which funnily enough still hasn't happened. You had G G20 meltdown that were protesting the G20 during the big mass protest in 2009. And there was also the Save the Vulcan campaign that was trying to save a local Cardiff Victorian pub from demolition, which is currently being built at St. Fagans, the Museum for Welsh Life. And should be open in 2023, we found out ah. the other day. Yeah. And it will be a working pub. <laughs> oh, it's actually going to be functioning, is it? Yeah, it's going to be a ah. functioning pub, which will be good. So we'll have ah. to go for a pint. When it yeah. Opens. Oh, I thought it was just going to be that the standalone building. Like this is what it used to look like. This is. Yeah. They're going to make it look like what it looked like in I think 1914. So it'll be really interesting. We've got that up here at Beamish actually. Mm. Beamish is a town up here where they put lots of old buildings rebuilt into this this town, and then they make the actual like pub and chip shop and stuff function as they did. So yeah, great stuff. Yeah. It's not okay. just about it's not just about stately homes, <laughs> but um. Yeah, following on from that, I've always had an interest in sport and how it's covered. So I started moving from protest into more sport kind of research through looking at um, football protests when fans protest at the games and how they use the stadium as a space for protest. So especially things like Cardiff when Vincent Tan changed the colour from blue to red. Um, We have protests against Hull City's owners who are still there because they wanted to change the name from Hull City to Hull Tigers. Uh, the ongoing ones with Newcastle and Mike Ashley, um, which may or may not come to an end, depending on how the powers that be see it. But just how all of these crop up and how they use football as a platform for a variety of different issues, often under the banner of things like um, against modern football, which normally means money. So like the rampant commercialization. And from there, it's been sport, mainly football, all the way, covering a variety of different subjects. The whole Tigers thing was quite funny. I went to the Chelsea whole away match a few years ago, and uh, the Chelsea fans were doing a little chart, and they were going, Tigers, Tigers, Tigers. (laughs) 
And the whole fans actually found it so funny. They just stood up and give it a clap. It was brilliant. That's good. Um, yeah, because yeah, the owner said, because um, it was whole city till I die, or city till I die. And the owner just said, well, they can die when they want to. Uh, but yeah, that's a very complicated story. There's a really good podcast on football today that looks at that and the relationship between um, journalists, the club, and the fans. Because the Athletic were going to run a story about various different things going on at board level. Uh, and they sent for comment to the owners. And then the owners decided to publish everything on their website. And yeah, it kind of all went from there. It blew up mm. in their face. Not very good PR. No. Um, so your teaching is mainly in sport journalism. Yeah, um, I cover. Yeah, I cover a lot. So I do things like so journalism in context, which is start again. So at the University of Gloucestershire, there are three journalism degrees. So there's a right. sports journalism, magazine journalism, and straight journalism. Right. Uh, so I teach a couple of modules that cover all three. One of those is journalism in context. So that's trying to show the students almost like a helicopter view of what is impacting upon the industry as a whole, be that culturally, economically, politically, all those kind of big issues where if you only focused on the practical elements, you wouldn't necessarily think about um, I mean, as we'll come on to things like race, social class, um, gender, uh, politics, columnists, all those kind of impacts. So a lot of uh, critical thinking then, really, mm. which um, in the kind of over the last sort of couple of decades, really, as journalism studies has grown as an academic field, I think it's become increasingly evident that whilst all of the practical skill sets that you might learn to, to be a journalist are really important, other things like critical thinking and the, the, the theoretical perspectives and analytical perspectives around journalism studies are equally important too. Do you do you find that that the current kind of curriculum that you're teaching um, reflects that kind of synergy of theory and practice and values the importance of critical thinking? Yeah, definitely. We're always trying to teach students how to think for themselves, but also how to challenge their own thinking because covering certain subjects can be quite uncomfortable it's also it's also not necessarily nice to see if you are of a different gender or a different ethnicity it's like how many people are at the very top um it's the sutton trust that always release they release reports about the amount of people from certain backgrounds who are at those really high editorial type levels mm. and those editorial type levels are still generally white and male uh, there's a slow change, but it's 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 not quick enough. But the way I couch it to them is, well, I'm teaching you this so that you can go off and you can smash those barriers because you know about them. You'll be aware of them and you'll know how to challenge them and think about your role and your role in changing changing the system. Yeah, I think that's really important as well in terms of, you know, it, when we do critical analysis of media, it's not necessarily about having a go at journalists. Um, and I think back when we first started doing this many years ago, there was more of a tension there because it was seen as journalists on the job with these annoying theorists on the side having a go at them. Whereas it really isn't that. It's it's more about 
looking at journal journalists often as professionals who are working within within certain environments that need to be critically scrutinized because it impacts upon the work that they do yeah because you can go back to things like the the famous greg dyke quote from the early 90s when he was talking about how the bbc looks really diverse on the outside but if you get behind if you get behind the cameras and stuff like that i think his phrase was hideously white um and generally you have people who have gone to pay for schools they've gone to oxbridge you know oxford and cambridge and it's trying to deconstruct those and what kind of stories are being told when those are the types of people who are making the editorial decisions i think that's one of the most important things to point out it's like why why does the journalism we get looks like what it looks like and you can just unpick it and pull it apart and uh, it's ripe for change but i also think academia can be far too critical of journalists because they are working within a system and it's not a monolith you know you've seen things like defund the bbc and was it hashtag scum media and it's kind of like yeah but you can't lump every single journalist into that same category and the other problem you've got as well is a lack of different differentiation between columnists and journalists so columnists are paid for their opinion they don't necessarily go off and do proper journalism whereas journalists are there they're working day in day out they're doing the routines they're checking things they're talking to sources uh, and they're trying to be balanced they're trying to balance their pieces rather than a columnist you know pay to annoy people pay to create a mailbag uh, and most high profile columnists often just cause outrage especially on things like twitter yeah i mean do you find that working in working with practitioners who are really experienced journalists and they're they're both cutting edge and sharing their skills with students but equally they're embracing the kind of and, and developing their own critical sort of toolkits as well it, it, it's, it's a very different i guess what i'm saying is it's a very different environment to what it used to be where you had that kind of theory corridor practice corridor journalism studies has become something so much bigger than that now hasn't it yeah yeah no so we obviously we all share a room and we're all aware of the same kinds of issues we just might come at it from slightly different angles they'll you know my colleagues will come at it from they've worked in the industry and i'll come at it going looking at yeah, you know, looking at it almost from an outside perspective just kind of like the trends that have led up to that point so it's quite interesting mm -hmm. to see the bits in between yeah there's, so, there's somebody that i like to use when i'm, when I'm doing stuff on mythology called jack lule and he talked about how he'd be in the because he was a, he was a journalist so he'd be in the newsroom and he would start looking at things and saying why are we using that archetype to tell that story there and why are we putting that per person into that character role and people were like we got a deadline here we can't be there <laughs> so he needed the the time and space to be able to do that kind of critical analysis i think it's a it's a really fascinating area so going more more um you can see an example of that in the last recent days right about um stereotyping and in, in football commentary and the use right. of certain phrases and things like that getting like you don't need depending on what theory you go from depends whether you're talking about archetypes or framing or myths yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's all similar words for similar things but 
especially terms like uh, black players will often be spoken about in terms of things like pace and power, about their physicality and how quick they are rather than their, in their intelligence. Whereas white players will be perhaps more cultured or more intelligent on the ball. And you can see how those ingrained stereotypes have historically played out in terms of where um, athletes have played. Is there is there research that's ever evidenced those those kinds of that kind of language as well, or is that? Is that there, just, go on. there was um, there was a Danish paper, uh, Danish I think it was Danish Danish company this week that released a. They looked at eighty games across a lot of European leagues, right. but there was another one that came out by um, Pauline Campbell, and I've forgotten his. Um, his co-author and that was about the World Cup in 2018 where I think I mean the, the title of the article takes itself from a Martin Keown quote where it speaks about which player is it and says he's like a gazelle when he runs you know that almost like animalistic type phraseology rather than he's an intelligent player makes intelligent runs uh, and Clyde Clive Tildesley came out and said, because he was talking about, so commentators mostly come from journalistic backgrounds. So they've been taught the ethics and taught all those kinds of things. But co-commentators are often ex-professionals um, who might not get that as much training as the professional has. So Tildesley was talking about how he thought co-commentators should go through sensitivity training but almost like training to spot when they're using these kinds of stereotypes because it's oh, very right. easy to stray from stereotype into out and out racism um what kind of specific case uh, interesting cases have you done in your own research in terms of on the topic of football i think you've done a bit yeah. about sterling raheem sterling haven't you uh so the way i've looked at raheem sterling is i looked at the various different ways in which he's been represented but also how he's represented himself so i looked at the twitter feeds of the sun and the mail about when they reported him to look at things like the headlines how he's described what kind of stories uh, about him there are i also looked at his own twitter feed to see how he represents himself um his instagram but also how he presents himself in interviews uh in various different places and what you generally find is uh, a young man, a young athlete, who's incredibly aware of how he's reported and then about how he comes across. The main consistencies he talks about is things like um, his religion and how much he respects his mum because of how she enabled him to become the athlete he is with all the support she gave. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, it's interesting how much Sterling is, the kind of coverage he's getting at the moment, because he had that stage when he was leaving Liverpool where I think he didn't necessarily have much of a voice and we didn't hear him much in the press, but he was represented as one of another another spoiled little brat who wanted more money from his football club and was sort of turning his back on a club that had supported him and so on. But actually, there's much more to him than that. He's quite He's quite an interesting character. He's certainly very engaging in the press at the moment yeah yeah the the turning point for him really was um or one of the turning points was if you remember back 
he did an Instagram post which compared, I think both articles were from the Daily Mail, it compared the coverage of two young Man, Man City players, one black, one white, both buying a house for their mum, but reported on in completely different ways. So one was fairly neutral, the white, the white player was fairly neutral, it was spoken about you know, buying his mum a house. Whereas the other one focused on how much they were earning, almost made it sound like they were, they were splurging their money up the wall kind of thing. And what was doubly interesting about that is Sterling didn't make it about himself, which he could do because some of the coverage he had, if you if you remember back to, I think it was post Euros in 2016, um, when he bought his mama house and it was on the front page, uh, and he was criticised because England had gone out to Iceland and it's like, what's he doing smiling? All this kind of stuff. Why is he doing all this money? You had the kind of stereotypes around things like bling and stuff like that. So he bought his mum a house. It's, you know, man buys house doesn't really have as much ring to it apart from this kind of sensationalist. I think that was the son that did that. Wasn't there something with Sterling uh, had the, there was a story about a tattoo that he had as well? Oh yeah, the the gun tattoo on his leg, uh, and the, interp the interpretations about the gun tattoo as well. Again, he used his own platform, Instagram, to say why he has that tattoo, and it's about his own father was uh, shot and killed um, back in Jamaica, and he got that tattoo as a way to say, I'm never going to touch a weapon. Um, to turning a negative into a bit more of a positive. But obviously it was misconstrued. Um, and the timing as well is often really important in these kind of stories. So it was in the run-up to, I think, the World Cup in Russia. And this he had had this tattoo for six months before yeah. the article came out. So there you've got the kind of tensions between the England team. And one of the things I noticed is that a lot of the stories that were personally about Sterling and about uh, whether it be his partner or his kids or the things he does tended to come when he was on international duty or in periods of low coverage, so not during the main season. That What you're saying also in terms of the, uh, the, the, the family stories, I found the, the recent case of Troy Deeney who spoke to Louis Theroux on his podcast. I found that really interesting as well about and, and the, the kind of shifting conversation that's going on around footballers rather than just seeing them as just uh, spoiled, overpaid, reckless, irresponsible. There seems to be, that stuff's still there, but there does seem to be a, a shifting conversation around them or conversations involving them, like Troy Deeney, for example, who talked a lot about his family background mm -hmm. to Louis Theroux. Um, and and, and uh, you know, the pressures that a lot of young players face in, prov in providing for their family, suddenly going from just being one kid in the household to suddenly providing not just for themselves, but on, for a limited period where they earn all this money, they're providing for an entire family that... Um, would otherwise be really struggling. Yeah, they're complex individuals, like, like we all are, and they have these these incredibly fierce pressures. Because as well as just, not only are they athletes, they're also seen as being things like role models, uh, even crossing over into celebrities, and they're placed upon this pedestal. Um, 
where every misstep is is highlighted and publicized mm. so it's quite a difficult life to live yeah because thinking back to sterling some of the quotes he gave was talking about the way he was covered and how negative it was is he was almost afraid to go out because he's like i can't even go out and buy an ice cream because it'll end up in the, in the press like, mm. i couldn't do anything uh and they reported on him in both in different ways as well so for instance buying a greg's or taking is either EasyJet or Ryanair, but then having a go at him for the cars he buys. And it's like, well, you, can't have it both, you can't have it both ways. You, it's just like, poor lad can't win. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Troy Deeney was saying as well how, you know, you get these lads from working class backgrounds who suddenly earn loads of money and get loads of stick for it. But then no, people don't necessarily question the fact that, an, you know, an actor might get, 10 times that amount for say one film or whatever there's things that we kind of just accept that's the way it is but then there's this other professions where we really people seem quite resentful of the fact that certain people get paid a certain amount of money um and footballers don't choose how much they're paid necessarily yeah they'll have agents and stuff like that who negotiate but they're paid whatever a club thinks they're worth mm. um yeah and football generates that money i mean there is that argument that if it's not going to go to the players, then who should it go to? Because it's, it is generating that amount of money from people watching it and going to it and so on. So, NBA and NFL players earn more. Mm. Um, I mean, the NBA, they play a lot more games, but the NFL is a lot fewer games. Admittedly, there is a bit of a wage disparity depending on your position, but um, you can earn a lot more than you can in the Premier League. Yeah. Um, when we were talking before, you mentioned uh, in relation to current events, you were talking about uh, Klopp and taking the knee and the players within the Premier League and these kinds of things. Do you, do you want to just talk about that for a bit? Because it was quite interesting when we were chatting earlier on about that. Well, yeah, starting with Klopp, it's just, yeah. just a fascinating individual. And we were talking about how it was in a press conference and he was being asked about uh about it was probably pre-lockdown so he was being asked about um live events and shutting out the fans and things like that and he quite clearly said well i'm a football manager i'm not a scientist why didn't you ask a scientist but then he did do a bit of almost like public service in terms of uh there's a famous clip of him not shaking hands with fans at the Liverpool Atleti match, um, which I think may or may not be linked to a, a clustering in the area, similar to things at the Cheltenham Festival, because um, you just had a lot of people coming into one place in close, in close confines. And then on the flip side, you had various players doing videos about you know, stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. Uh, and in terms of things like Black Lives Matter, what you see, and players together you've seen players come together almost as a collective uh, if you've seen some of the articles they talk about how the captains of all the premier league teams they have their own whatsapp group um and it was negotiated between that whatsapp group about what they would do in reaction to things like um matt hancock the health minister when he thought that football players should do more uh, even though 
they often, as you mentioned, Troy Deeney, he mentions this as well. Football players often have their own foundations. Yeah, donate a lot, yeah. Donate a lot. Um, you have the whole, was it, common goal where they donate money to particular, uh, I think it's about 10% of their wages to particular charities. Um, but that's a whole other, that's a whole other t- debate about how politics Clubs as well. Is. Clubs try yeah. to do a lot in their communities too. Yeah, the whole foundation process, you know, I think, yeah, most football clubs will have some form of charitable foundation, which does things in the chat in the community. Um, so you've seen players come together. Uh, so players together. Uh, I think Jordan Henderson was one of the spearheads for that, trying to figure out what footballers should do in order to, in order to help. In terms of Black Lives Matter, and the taking the knee, um, it was two. Uh, Two players up at Liverpool that were one of the ones who were one of the spearheads, who so was Van Dijk and Wijnaldum. They were some of the ones who got the Liverpool players to do around the centre circle um, and take a knee. So yeah, and then of course it spirals out, and you've got Black Lives Matter on the shirts. And you know, well, one thing, it. one thing that's really frustrating me on social media that I've seen a lot, and it's still being said now, when pre- when the Premier League announced it would have Black Lives Matter on the shirts, <clears throat> there was this, people were immediately bringing up the poppy and saying, well, they shouldn't be doing that to the poppy. And it, and it, firstly, it was wrong. Like the Premier League have supported the poppy since 2012. They've raised millions of pounds for the, for, for the, uh, the British Legion. And what people are connecting there is the FIFA case where they... Tr- where they decided to, that the poppy was a political symbol and they were going to ban it and then they reversed the decision and England could wear poppies on their shirts. But nonetheless, that was FIFA or UEFA, one of the two. Um, the, the Premier it's not the Premier League. And people keep saying it as if, wow, this is outrageous. The poppy wasn't allowed, but now they've got Black Lives Matter. If that's not a political statement, then what is? And it's just it just isn't true. But for some reason, there's this real, wow, I think we know some of the reasons, but um, yeah, it's just it's uh, to bring it back to a broader point I wanted to talk about. I think it demonstrates the importance, and we're seeing it in a moment the significance of sport in society. Sport isn't this trivial thing that we just do to watch and have a few beers with on a Friday night or Saturday afternoon or whatever. This is this, what happens in sport reflects so much about the societies in which we live. Yeah, definitely. Uh, to use to use an old adage, is uh, sports journalism used to be referred to as the toy department in the newsroom. And when it comes to things like research in sport, I think when I first, uh, I mean, obviously it's a, a fairly, it was a new field to me coming from protest. But it almost felt like uh, looking at sport media was like was like the toy department of of journalism studies and so what are you looking at sport for but for me i think i tend to use sport mainly because i think it's a really neat way of trying to explain some of the more complicated issues that are going on in society because it represents all of them you can look at societal pressures political cultural economic you've got all these different things going on so you've got if you if we just talk about football is you've got the globalization of the Premier League, you've got players from all different places in the world 
playing in very local lo parts of the UK. So you have that local and then you have the global and they, and they clash in many ways. Um, and you can see that in terms of like the fans um, and how they view things and you get things that come from football culture, things like the EDL or as you saw down by the Cenotaph, the Football Lads Alliance. And to give them their proper name, the Democratic Football Lads Alliance, because they split, I think, at one point. So you see all these kind of these clashes of various different types of cultures all around a sport of football. And you can just you can just put layer upon layer of what it means and how it attaches itself to people's identities and the way it's been written about there's um incredible academic research going on out there yeah yeah um i think that's a really important point as well for the students studying journalism and sport the sport in the media and so on is that this isn't just it's not just a chance to read more about the football teams you like it's, a, it's to understand it as part of culture and to understand it in relation to identity in relation to to to, to power um it protest all those things i think are really important for for media and cultural studies and i think it's it's good that, I, that sport is a, a growing field within that um it doesn't take place in a vacuum yeah exactly yeah. You see, you see with all the scandals and things like so if you want to take athletics uh, russia and its state-sponsored doping it's just like you can't talk about that type of athletics without talking about the politics behind having international teams uh you know because the big countries they don't necessarily go to war with each other anymore but when they do come up against each other on say a football pitch that's where it's taking place. That's where the, the rivalries come about. You know, the whole Russia World Cup, this idea of soft power, um, it's like a grand PR event. Um, yeah. Now, I think as well, what's happened recently in, with, with the protests and so on, it's, it's actually, it's drawn attention to the, to, partly to the, despite all of the work that, football clubs have done to try and tackle racism and to, to you know what we're seeing with the Premier League that we've just been talking about the clubs themselves and the fan bases do still have they're still carrying some baggage from previous decades when some of this really ugly stuff and these 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 groups that have attached themselves so I mean Chelsea have had problems with these far-right groups for decades the and White Lives Matter banner was uh, a Burnley fan yeah 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 um and i think it really has drawn some attention to the fact that there is still work to be done i mean i've been on to to, to away matches in particular where you, you you see groups of fans that you wouldn't usually see at home matches um and you mix in you do different grounds and different areas with different parts of the fan base and I, I still see and hear things now. I think that at one point when I wasn't going to away games, I thought it kind of disappeared from the grounds and, and from the terraces. But it's still there and it's still a, it's still a real problem, particularly with these, these far right groups that 
latch, latch themselves onto fan bases and younger lads get involved with them in particular. Um, yeah. I mean, I, but, what I would say is I'm part of uh, the Football Collective, which is a collection of academics and other like-minded individuals who all research football. Mm-hmm. And during the lockdown, they've done a series of webinars called Away From The Numbers, all about lots of different topics, about things like gender, um, history, you name it, they've covered it. But it's an invaluable resource. And they're very, very welcoming to early career researchers as well. Oh, okay, excellent. They had um, an online, during lockdown, they had an online conference. And all of the speakers were early career researchers, like PhD students and uh, people just starting out. So it's incredibly welcoming. Uh, so do you want to say a little bit more about that in terms of that, the football, the football collective it's called, isn't it? You said. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to just talk about that a little bit more in relation to your experience of kind of getting the break you needed in academia and establishing yourself kind of within and beyond the early career stages of your, 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 your of your career? Yeah. Well, part of it was, so obviously doing protest is thinking about, where that can be taken and there are a lot of academics out there who cover protest so part of it was strategic and thinking well how do i make myself stand out from the crowd and i was like well there's a lot less about sport media um even though it generates billions upon billions of pounds it's just not examined as much as other forms of journalism uh, and other forms of media so i thought well i like sport I can do so. Yeah, I've got a passion, not for playing, but for watching. <laughs> um, so it's like, let's see where I can take this. So, like I mentioned earlier, married up protest and football, and I've taken it from there. And I've looked at all sorts. I'm currently writing up a bunch of different things. Ones around so-called proper football men, which is uh, the older, normally English managers. Uh, think about people like Sam Allardyce um, and how they create their own image there's less of them around now but there was a certain point a few years ago where they seem to be getting jobs left right and center I've also looked at things like um, gambling sponsorship uh, so I was looking at what was it um, Wayne Shaw the guy who ate the pie uh, at Sutton United, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and just all about what that means and how gambling, whilst it's always been around football, how it suddenly became part of the match, not mm. just you know, not just the hoardings and on the shirts. Mm. Um, I'm also writing up a chapter about Sterling, how he's represented himself in interviews. Um, I'm co-writing one with Dan Kilvington from up in Leeds Beckett who I met through the Football Collective oh, Yeah, and we're doing one about um, uh, Antonio Rüdiger and the Spurs match mm. uh, when he says he heard uh, monkey chants and how that was responded to on fan forums and on social media because uh, it's just a fascinating little case study mm. but also things like Sports journalism practice. So I'm working with Glenn Mottisett down at City University to look yeah. at how sports journalists, how their use of Twitter has changed since the start of Twitter. 
So we're going to scrape a whole load of data from it and just look at how different people have used it over time. Um, so yeah, tons of stuff. Yeah, Glenn's, Glenn's great, isn't he? He's really good with the data stuff on social media as well. Yeah, he's helped me a lot. Yeah. I think the key point what you're making here as well is um, one of the reasons I wanted us to briefly talk about this was just because I, I, I think that for early career researchers, for even for people still doing their PhDs, I think it's really important to find these smaller networks that are more niche and more focused on particular um, on particular areas and specialisms because that's, that's not to knock any of the kind of bigger organizations and networks that we that we are familiar in our field like like Mexa and, and yeah. so on but I do think that the kind of support that you've talked about in relation to the football collective and the opportunities that you've you've kind of stumbled so much what we do is, 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 is do stumble across the <laughs> chance oh for um, sure but it's really important and i really i think that's really i've certainly found just some of the smaller networks and working more closely with experienced researchers who you know who have, who themselves have have benefited from other mentors in the field and they're taking their turn to pass on um or to to, to share their specialisms and to offer to, to, to offer support and I think that you know it's now our chance or our responsibility to do the same and I think through those kinds of smaller networks um, that's where that kind of stuff can happen and we can really reach out and and help each other and um, it's, it's a difficult time for any career researchers as well so yeah um, definitely it's like you know when you and I were starting out we thought it was difficult for us because it was it was the last ref period, uh, but you had, you had to ref this ref mm. coming up and plus coronavirus. Mm. Um, and it's going to be difficult for a bit. Sorry for anybody listening who doesn't know what the ref is. It's the research excellence framework. I think that's what the acronym means, but it's, it's the kind of national assessment that we have once every five years or so of, of our research that gets kind of ranked and scored. Um, and, the, and, and they do. They give money out on the back of it. Yeah. Um, it's really, really good to talk to you, mate. And um, no, it's good to see you. Send my love to your very well-behaved family who haven't been any bother in the background. It's all right. They're <laughs> the childminder. That's why. <laughs> uh, lucky you. But um, it's been great to talk to you. And uh, take care. And I'll speak to you soon. Yeah, good to Goodbye. speak to you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.